Shabbat Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and this is another edition of our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Welcome to all of you. Glad you could join us, and I hope that uh, you have some friends there with you joining in, enjoying your Sabbath dinner and our service. We'll get to Kiddush here very quickly, but I want to share a couple of quick announcements with you. Um, Today is the last day that you can register for the Feast of Tabernacles without paying a late fee. Uh, this is August 15th, and I'm asking you right now, please don't have to pay the additional amount. If you think you're going to be coming and you want to try to come, sign up. Please register as soon as you can for us. And by the way, you're helping us out uh, to get prepared and ready for the feast as well uh, this fall. I might also mention, uh, while I'm trying to urge you to get registered for Sukkot, I might also mention to you that later on in the year, before the end of the year, we have a Hanukkah conference planned in December, and we have activities for all the kids and the youth, and we have a website that you can go to, HanukkahEvent.com. It can give you more information as to the dates and the times as to what we're going to be doing and where we'll be at. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, that will be off in December. Why well, check that out? And we'll look forward to that in the future as well. You know, in keeping the faith, it's one festival to the next festival, one Sabbath to the next Sabbath. And I don't know how anybody can go around saying that they're bored in this faith. I mean, you know, because there's, we're always partying. You know, we're always having a party. Amen? Of course, there's a different theme with each one, and we're trying to teach things to the Lord. But we're always having a good time. Amen? All right, without any further ado, let's uh, go to Kiddush. We'll get our Sabbath underway. Shalom. We're the Judah family, and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, 
We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu etarunai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach le'olam vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha Nedahar Bachodesh. Nohora Techilot. Oh, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinantam l'avenecha, V'tepardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ot ha'yadecha, v'heyu la'totofot b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mozuzo b'techa, u'visharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, welcome, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to gather together with friends and family. Just to let your presence dwell here this day, Lord. Just let your presence be here. Keep our friends and family that are traveling, keep them safe. Let them all be blessed, Father. Uh, in Yeshua's name, we pray. the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord and these are the days of your servant Moses righteousness being restored and though these are days of great trials of famine and darkness and sorrow we are the voice in the desert crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Behold, He comes riding on the clouds, shining like the 
Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 16. Hold your verse at, or hold your finger at verse 18, uh, where our portion for this week will begin. As you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato, Baruch Adonai, non ten ha'torah ha'amein. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples, and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. 
Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Shoftim, which means judges. It comes from that verse, uh, verse 18 of chapter 16, where it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, that you shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe, for a a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. As we are in the uh, reading of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is continuing to give us more stipulations, guidelines, commandments here to that generation that was going to go into the promised land. Moses is, if you will, abbreviating all of the commandments that, and the covenant that God has given to us. And he has, he's speaking to the children of Israel. When they go into the promised land, they're going to establish a new kingdom there in the promised land. After they go, they've been given commandments to go and dispossess all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And then when they do that, they're then going to establish cities. They're going to establish a kingdom. They're going to, and now we have the instruction for them to appoint judges, officers, leaders among them, who will then render judgments to the people. If the people have an issue amongst one, one another, if they need a judgment in a certain matter, there's going to be the appointment of judges that is going to then preside over the children of Israel. And in our, uh, in our Bible, in our scripture, we see, if you just look at the, the Bible tabs, uh, there down the side of your Bible, if you have them, you know, we know after Deuteronomy, we then have Joshua, and he'll lead the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, and that'll be much of the conquests and the wars that will take place. They will go to dispossess the people of the land. And then immediately following that, we have a book in our Bible called Judges. And this is when the leaders of the children of Israel were all the series of judges that were appointed before the Lord. And this sort of, uh, this uh, commandment here in Deuteronomy kind of leads us to that point. It says that these judges were to be uh, there to administer justice and render judgments to all of the people. And it says specifically they were to render just judgment. They weren't to take a bribe. They were. This is one of those things that you just, if you look at, sometimes you'll see a court case in the modern day or in the news, or maybe it's your favorite uh, television drama, courtroom drama that then has some sort of, there'll be some sort of storyline along the way where you'll get a judge who's presiding over a case and that he has some other sort of motivation at hand. And then you'll find out that even judges can be corrupted by uh, whether it be some sort of criminal nature, whether it be taking a bribe, they had some other sort of skin in the game, if you will, and then there'll be some sort of storyline where there's such thing as corruption amongst even judges, those are that are elected to render good judgment. The Lord knows this. The Lord knows human nature that even if we're appointing a person to be any sort of position of authority, there's always a chance, based on human nature, that they will become corrupt, they'll take a bribe, and then they will mishandle the responsibility that is given to them. So we, we uh, have the uh, commandment here that specifically addresses that. You're not to pervert justice. There is not to be any partiality. There is not to be bribes that take place if you are appointed to this position. 
Um, in my scripture here at verse 20, um, my New King James reads this. It says, you shall follow what is altogether just. Most translations and a better translation of those, uh, of those Hebrew words is it should say this. It should say, justice, justice you shall pursue. Some translations might say righteousness, which that Hebrew word zedek is used interchangeably for righteousness and for justice. You look at that, and if you're reading in the scripture, and you see that it's written twice, you might think that that might be redundant. However, it is not. Because every teacher that has ever taught this passage has looked at that and said, look, we want justice, but also justice has to be pursued in a just way. We want what is right. We want righteousness. However, we must also get what is right in the right way. This is the scriptural foundation for the phrase that um, you shall not get what is right, that the ends do not justify the means. The ends do not justify the means. Even though we're seeking righteousness, even though we're seeking justice, if we did it in a way that was corrupt, if we did it in a way that we you know, went through some loopholes or worked around uh, what, is law, what is law, what is right, that that is not what we should do. That is not true righteousness. That is not true justice. In the case of where you might watch a courtroom drama and you might find out that the, the prosecutor had some piece of evidence, but they obtained the evidence illegally. It was an illegal search. And that then it was then a piece of evidence was removed from the court case because there was no warrant uh, issued to search the premises and, and gain that evidence and it's removed from uh, from the court case. This is actually, biblically, that's actually the correct thing to do. Because justice, justice you shall pursue. Pursue justice, but follow the correct procedures for gaining that. So whenever you, you've seen that, whether you've been in a court case where that was um, that happened, or you've seen it in a TV show, that is biblically sound judgment to remove a piece of evidence that is obtained in an illegal way. Because whatever we are seeking, righteousness or justice, it should be sought in the correct way. When it says that the judges are appointed, it says that you shall appoint officers in all of your gates. Why is that? Why is it give that stipulation? Well, in ancient times, that this is exactly what they did. The elders of the city would meet each other at the gates, at the gates of the city. And that's where they would sit. That's where the judgment seat of Moses would sit at each village. It would be at the gates of the city. Why? Well, one, that's where all the coming and going of the city is. You know who's leaving the city. You know who's coming into the city. If they were to see somebody coming into the city that was new, never been there before, they would then be able to meet them, greet them, and know and that you can be a better judge of a city if you kind of know who's there. You see all the comings and goings of the city. Also, you got to remember, what was also commanded to be at the gates of all things? Whether it be your house, even the gates of the city. Well, that was the mezuzah. That was the words of the commandment, the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These words which I command in you, all of the commandments, were at the gates of the city. And if, in fact, if you go to Israel today, even at the gates of the old city of Jerusalem, you'll see giant mezuzahs at those places, at the gates. And you see many people walking by and kissing the mezuzah as they go in. And that is where the words of the law are written and are inside that compartment that is attached to the gates. 
So at any point in time, when a judge was to render a judgment, and people were like, well, why are you rendering that judgment? The judge could turn and say, because we have the commandments of the Lord. The Lord has commanded us that this is what we are to do, and here's the sign of that covenant. These are the words that are here, and this is where we are rendering the judgment. This is why we are rendering the judgment. Because that's what the judges were to do. The judges were to become, were to be experts on the law. They had to study it. They had to know it. In fact, later on in our portion, as we go into chapter 17, it talks about this. Let me read here. Uh, let's go to verse 8 of chapter 17. It says this. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy which are in your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place where the Lord your God chooses, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of the judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you. You shall do, you shall not turn aside to the right or to the left, the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptively and will not heed to the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or the judge, that that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear, and no longer act presumptively. Anyone who was to be a judge, they were to be experts on the commandments and the laws of Moses, that were given by God through Moses. And if there ever was a matter that was too hard to judge... Too much, we don't really know what we're going to do here. Uh, that judgment, that evidence is this way, but that evidence is to, to, the, controversy, to the contrary. Well, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to judge this? They were, then were to go to the Levites. Why go to the Levites? Well, the Levites were the ones who were set apart from the children of Israel that were the intermediaries between God and the Israelites. They had, and you go back to the book of Leviticus and you'll see all of the instruction that they had when it came to the matters of the tabernacle, and there was a great deal of uh, specific procedures for them to follow. They knew how to follow rules. The, the Levites had to know how to follow the rules, because when it came to the service of the tabernacle, this was a life-or-death situation. If you messed up in how you offered the incense, if you how you offered to the Lord, it was a life-or-death situation. We learned that back in Leviticus. We learned that with from Nadab and Abihu. We learned that from Korah. Anyone who ever approached the tabernacle and the things of God in an unworthy manner, it was a life or death situation. So they knew how to follow the rules. So the Levites were experts on the Torah, experts on the scripture, that, they, that God called them out specifically for that purpose. So they were to be the ones that would preside over these things. They know the law because it's upon their heart. The prophet Malachi uh, says something uh, to this effect. In Malachi chapter 2, at verse 7, it says this. It says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. That the law was upon the lips of the priests, because that was what they were called to do. Here's the other thing, too, that you should always remember, and this kind of flies under the radar for the most part. Moses was a Levite. 
He, that's where he came from the tribe of Levi. He himself was set apart to be the leader of the children of Israel. And that this goes back to the story where he was the one who would render judgments for the people. And then we have an entire Torah portion going back to uh, Yithro, his father-in-law, who came and observed what he did. And he was rendering judgments left and right to all the people of the children of Israel from morning until night. And he was tired and he never got a break for himself. And the council of Yithro, his father-in-law, said, you've got to appoint some other people to do this. And this is where God actually tells and instructs the children of Israel to do exactly that. Appoint judges. Appoint people who can render these judgments because you were going to need it. If we look at the scripture as a whole and if we look at the modern day uh, messianic movement, Hebrew roots movement, we have a lot of people that do a lot of interpretation of scripture. The Torah, when the Torah is specific about a certain commandment, we can look at the literal reading of the Torah and we can say, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to eat this. We are going to eat that. We are going to keep these festivals. We're not going to keep things that are not biblically or not in the Bible, not uh, not actual holidays that are given by God in, in the Torah. Some of these things are very specific and we can understand them. However, the scripture does not cover everything. We debate amongst ourselves exactly how to walk out certain commandments. Exactly what does it mean when it says, oh, for Sabbath, for instance, where it says, well, you can't kindle, it says, do not kindle a flame. But then you also says, no, do no laborious work. And then people question whether you can use a Bic lighter on Sabbath. And so all of these details are not really uh, explained out. We need, sometimes we need to discuss amongst ourselves and that we need to have a judgment. We need somebody to give us an answer on what is right or wrong when it comes to Scripture. And that is why we have this appointment of judges. Because the human nature is going to sometimes try to find loopholes in the commandments. That's what we will have a tendency to do. We need organization. We need structure. And sometimes people, in our human nature, almost craves that organization and that structure. And, that, and God knows that. So God gives us this instruction, this appointment of judges. Our scripture continues on, talking about uh, in verse 14 of chapter 17. It then says this, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, to possess and to dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, and you shall set a king over you, and you may not set a foreigner over you. Who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way ever again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. This is where God gives us a stipulation and says, look, when you go into the land, I'm telling you to appoint judges. This is what's going to happen. But there's going to come a time... When you're going to want a king, and we know exactly that, and this is a prophecy that is fulfilled in our scripture. Like I said, just look down the tabs of your Bible and you can see this prophecy fulfilled. Because after Judges, we then have the book of Ruth that took place during the Judges, the books of First and Second Samuel, and then First and Second Kings. And Samuel, the prophet Samuel, was the one who God chose to anoint and used him to show who he was choosing to be a king. First it was Saul, then it was David, and then so forth on down the line. This prophecy is fulfilled that the children of Israel going into the land did desire a king. But when you go to do it, there is some just ways that the king is to act. 
Obviously, when a king and a leader is appointed, the king then has authority to declare this, to declare that. We shall all go back down to Egypt. We shall all do this. And this says not only for judges to render just judgment, they also, we have the instruction for kings to do what is altogether just as well. In all things. He's not to set himself up above all things, everyone. In fact, our passage continues, and I'll talk about that in a second. But he was not to multiply gold and silver. He wasn't to make judgments that would to make him so much better and richer. But it, all of his judgments were for the people. You have to remember that's the entire purpose of this entire passage of Scripture was for the people of Israel to form a kingdom and to walk uprightly before the Lord, following the commandments and the instructions, following the covenant that God has made. The king was to do this, and the king also, in the same way that judges need to be familiar with the law, in the same way that all the priests needed to be familiar with the law, the scripture then tells this, verse 18, And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy in, uh, of, the law, of this law in a book, from the one before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and the statutes, that his heart might not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. If we were going, if we're going to appoint a king, we have priests, we have judges, they're familiar with the law. If we have a king, he needs to know what the covenant and the commandments of Moses, given by God through Moses, what those are as well. And we have the stipulation. When he sits on the throne, when he becomes king, he's to take a copy of the law, he's to take a book, and he is to copy the law into the book. Not just any law, the one that is before the priests and the Levites. So we make sure we have the same the same law here. Because if a king is going to go in and be like, alright, here's the book of the law and here's your own book. This is what you need to do. You need to write it down. And then he goes into his private chambers and be like, mm, I don't really like that one. I'm going to change it here in my book of the law. It's a it's the kind of thing, I, I heard a story once that somebody was teaching out teaching about the Bible and then somebody said, well, well, my Bible doesn't say that. And it's like, what do you mean your Bible doesn't say that? It's like, it doesn't say that. And so then they're like, well, where's your Bible? And then he pulls out this one that is his own personal translation of the Bible, and it didn't match what was another translation or one that maybe is considered with a little bit more authority. So when you sit there and you make a copy, it's got to be the right law. You can't change it. It's also very specific. And the Hebrew language is so amazing that you can change sometimes just one letter in a word and it completely changes the entire meaning. We talked about this when we had the Shema, when he talks about that we had certain letters in the Shema that are written large to ensure that they don't ever get changed throughout the history of time. Because if you change that Ain to an Aleph, it turns from here to perhaps. And if you change... Uh, that the last word echad and that dalit at the end of the Shema, if you change that dalit to a resh, which would be easy, very easily to do if you're writing too quickly, then it would mean echar, which means that instead of God being one, God would be another God. If you change just one letter. And so knowing that that's possible to change the meaning, we want to make sure that if a king is writing the law and he is going to follow the law, that he doesn't make that same mistake. That he or or even it might not be a mistake. Maybe one would intentionally try to change the law for their own benefit. The king was to know these things and follow the law in the same way that the priests were to do so. 
It's the same thing if you look at today, whether you're electing a president or you're electing a king of a new nation, you would want the leader of that nation to know the laws of the nation. He has to know the laws of the nation. Otherwise, he's going to act corruptly. He's going to do whatever he wants based on and go against whatever the established laws of the nations are. That would be that would be disastrous. And so when we talk about in this country, we want the king or, or I'm sorry, the president that's in our country, that he is to uphold the Constitution, which is the law of the country. He's to swear, a, swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. You know what would be a great idea? Is if every single president, after they're elected, that there was some sort of procedure with a bunch of pens and they sit down and he actually rewrote every word of the Constitution. Because one of the things that happens is when you rewrite or copy something, you retain the information a little bit better. That's a learning tactic. We do that in grade school where we tell kids to copy things down. And when you actually write something down, you're able to remember it better. A lot of people are like this. I'm kind of the same way. If you ever can't sleep at night and you got something on your brain and you can't get it out of your brain and you, you like, and then if you go to sleep and you, then you wake up and then you forget what it was. So a lot of people have the technique is they go, they, they sit up, they have a piece of paper and a pen by their bedside and they write it down and then they can go back to bed. And if they don't write it down, they'll never remember it. There's, that's a kind of another human nature kind of element. And so one of the things to actually have somebody copy down a law causes them to retain the information. That would be a fantastic thing to do in a country when you appoint a new leader. In the same way that the scripture itself, God knowing this, instructs Moses to command the children of Israel to do the same. It's also another thing for us as well. In this country, for those of us that are that believe in the scripture and, and doing right, and we have presidents that profess to be Christians, if they read from the scripture, if they had a Bible by their bedside and read for read from it as they, however they wanted to, if they needed to, do you think how much wonderful, more wonderful our country would be in them as a leader, following the words and the commandments of God? That's what the king was instructed to do. This book was to be by their side everywhere that they go. So that they could refer to it. So that they can read it in their spare time. And so when we have had presidents in the past that are professed to be Christians, and if we ever found out, it'd be like, yeah, they have a Bible. They read from it all the time. Now, how encouraging would that be to know this person knows the commandments of God? They, and so then they act accordingly. They do what is righteous. They do what is just. And they do it in a righteous way, especially if they're reading from these, these particular passages. Again, all of this entire uh, Torah portion is all about the children of Israel after they go in to the promised land. They're going to establish a kingdom. They're going to, they need, we need to figure out how to work as a community, as a nation that works together. We've got to remember, we're still only one generation removed from being a kingdom of slaves. Sometimes that mentality of being a slave, it takes, might take a couple of generations to kind of work that out. A lot of these instructions that come in this passage are all about how for the children of Israel to walk uprightly before the Lord and to be a kingdom of priests serving God. And so it starts with the establishment of judges. When you go to establish a king, you're going to do this. Then there's other commandments and instructions that talk about what you do when you enter into the land. It continues to reiterate things like don't to avoid wicked customs that are amongst the nations that you should the abominations that other nations did, you're to avoid those things. Chapter 19 starts talking about how the establishment of several cities of refuge, basically when, um, and this concerns the law of the blood avenger, when somebody accidentally killed somebody, there's a city of refuge for them to go to. 
However, the stipulation uh, is then elaborated on in, in verse 11 of chapter 19, where it says, If anyone hates their neighbor, lies in wait, commits first-degree murder, intending to kill somebody, then they kill somebody, and then they get to run to a city of refuge because then they won't get caught and they won't get persecuted there. It actually says if that is the case, if that's if the ruling is determined that somebody premeditatedly killed somebody, the city of refuge is not a place for you to survive. They, they could go into that city, they could find the person, They could, in fact it was commanded for them to grab that person and deliver them to the near of kin, to the blood avenger, for justice to be administered. For them to then be killed if somebody lie in wait. So even though you, when we talk about things like the cities of refuge where somebody, that was always for somebody who unintentionally hurt somebody, made a mistake, did not intend for something to happen. But first degree murder is absolutely punishable by death. I don't care where you are. If it doesn't matter if that person is offering a sacrifice on the altar, they're to go into that place, grab the guy by the collar, and ju- for justice to be administered. We also have the um, very specific commandment in verse 14. It says, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. Men of old have set your inheritance that you will inherit the land of the Lord, Lord your God to giving you to possess. This is one of the things that God calls an abomination in the Proverbs where it says one that moves his neighbor's boundary mark. Because this is something, when we go in the end, so much of this passage and so much of Deuteronomy is about the inheritance that God is giving to them of the promised land. That once we go in, once we establish that inheritance, this is God's gift to you. If you then go and you alter that, then you are acting presumptively to think you know better than God. Oh, that person got a little bit more land. I don't think they should have gotten that much land. So I'm going to move the boundary marker to give myself a little bit more land. That would be a presumptive thought, which we've already read specifically there in the middle of chapter 17, where it says no one is to act presumptively to think that you know what is right. And that's what, and that is the exact, that's the flip side of the coin between we have righteous judges who are appointed and then people who act presumptively. Whenever you have an issue and you have a question, our human nature tends to want to look, think in our own mind, and be like, well, maybe it was okay. Maybe everything is fine. I can think on my own. I, I have my scripture myself. And so I presume that uh, I can, uh, it was okay. I can make that judgment, judgment, that judgment myself. I can decide that for myself. That is a presumptive thought. That is to presume or assume that you know what is right. The problem is, is God knows our heart. And you know, in your heart, in your heart of hearts, whenever you think that way, you know when you're just creating a loophole for yourself, when you really maybe should admit to something, maybe uh, confess that you did mess up, go to a judge and say, turn yourself in and say, hey, you know what, I made this mistake. The, that is what the system that is in place that God is commanding for you that to be. There's judges who make these rulings for you. The opposite of that is for one to presume what they know and they don't have to go through a judge. They don't have to go through some other authority. I'm sure you know many people that might think that way. People that, you know, start their, that 
we have congregations and people then leave congregations. One of the things that usually happens is you have a conflict with the authority of the congregation. Somebody thinks and presumes they should be the leader of the congregation or that they know better than what is being instructed. And so then that usually is what causes splits in congregations and people leave. They go form their own fellowship. But then anybody that goes with them, it usually doesn't take very long for somebody else to realize and be like, you're just... Okay, so you're just, you presumed that about that person there, but now you're just presuming to know that you then know what all the scripture is. And very soon people learn and realize that people have a tendency to be selfish and they presume to know what they're talking about. Presume to know, have all the knowledge of scripture. You gotta remember back from the very beginning though, God says it's not good for man to be alone. God commands us to have holy convocations for us to be in fellowship with one another that we are to work together, that we are to not stand on our own for a single person to think he knows best. We need one another. We need discussions amongst ourselves when we have midrashes. We need congregations. We need leaders. We need people because that is what it takes to have a good and righteous community before the Lord and to have a good fellowship within your congregations. We don't want anybody to presume anything. We have an instruction, also a prophecy here. This is a very famous prophecy if we go back to chapter 18 in our passage. Verse 15, where it talks about God raising up a prophet like unto me in your midst. A prophet like unto Moses. And it says that, that it will be from from among your brethren. Him you shall hear when that person rises and speaks the word of the Lord. You shall listen to them. Verse 16, according to all that you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying... Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord our God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, when they have spoken is good, I will raise up from them, for them, a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We've always thought that this is actually two prophecies. One, a prophecy about some coming future prophet that rises up in the midst of the brethren that they shall listen to. And then it says again, I will raise up for them a prophet like uh, like Moses from among the brethren. And we believe that that is a prophecy that points to the Messiah. That the Messiah himself will rise up from the midst of the brethren. If it continues on and it says that he that it shall... B, that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Then when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... If the thing does not happen or come to pass, then it is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptively, and you shall not be afraid of him. This connects back to how when when somebody rises up in our midst, and he says that he has a word from the Lord. And if he speaks in the name of the Lord, uh, it it says the caution will be, it's like, how, how do we know if this is from the Lord? It's, uh, the Lord says, look, if, if I have spoken it, then he, what he will do, he'll walk at it out. He will not command us to go after other gods. He won't speak of any of those things. And then also, if he speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not come to pass, then you will know. This is one of the cautious things that we have that, that we have to balance when it comes to anyone rising up in our midst and who teaches and says they teach from the word of the Lord. We have to be cautious of that. 
And that's why many people have been misled many times over by people who have come speaking in the name of the Lord and then misleads the brethren. You hear about it from televangelists who live lavish lifestyles and take the money of many donors and then live it out. And they call themselves a prophet of God. The thing is, is you have to pay very close attention to those things to ensure that they don't happen. How do we prevent that? Sometimes we need judges and we need them to come and we, again, forming a community around us to know what is altogether right and what is altogether just among us. I recently watched uh, a video of, that was a court case where someone was, where somebody who called himself an apostle or a prophet, I couldn't remember, was being uh, prosecuted for a great deal of fraud and he had taken and embezzled a great amount of money all in the name of ministry and things like that. And you listen to the person and you just, you, you heard the testimony of them and you, they were just lying through their teeth and you could just tell and you just knew in your spirit that they were, that they just took all the money and they got, they had limos and they have houses and they have all kinds of other cars and things like that. And what it was was there was a prosecutor and there was a judge and they were standing up for the people that had given their money to this person calling himself a prophet when he was not a prophet. He was not a prophet from God and he was out and he was a gainsayer and all he did, everything that he did was to get all this money. And without the judges, and I believe that ministry is now shut down, what we have to have is we have to have judges who know the law, who know the instruction to help us out in the, in the matters like this. Matters that are too hard for us to judge amongst ourselves, but we have to have leaders and people who know the law and the commandments. It's a, it's a balancing act. It really is. I know that there's many of us scattered throughout the country who are a part of various local congregations and fellowships who've been a part of congregations where the leadership made a mistake. They did something wrong. You will know in your heart, you have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what is altogether right or wrong. Don't turn to the side, to the right or to the left, but Father, reveal to us what is right or wrong. And you will know in your spirit when you listen to what they say. Sometimes a leader will rise up and he will be repentant of the mistakes that he's made. And he say, look, I repent, I make restitution, I, what do I have to do to prove this to you? And others will continue to make excuses, will continue to lie. Even after going to court and after sitting on a stand and, and being sworn to, to speak the truth, they will still skirt around the facts and will try to cover themselves for what they were desiring for themselves. Usually it was financial gain or greed or some other sin that caused them to do those things. Allow the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Whenever, if you, and many people have, have seen this, whether it's leaders of home fellowships or, or large congregations, look at the heart of the person. What was their intention? What were they intending to do when they have had a major impact on your life and they've spoken the words of encouragement to you? Then that should be a sign to you to know, it'd be like, look, this was an honest mistake. We shall make a righteous judgment. We'll per pursue what is just and what is righteous in this case. And then we will move on. And that's what we have to do. We have to make those judgments among them, ourselves sometimes. Until we have a greater established leadership or authority, and here we are scattered into the nations, we don't have a priesthood, we don't have a Levite that we can go to to listen to for a specific judgment in these cases, 
we have to continue to ask for the Holy Spirit, the helper that Yeshua called that would come after he ascended to heaven, that that Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to remember the words that he spoke, help us to remember the commandments that were given. That's what we really need is we need these words written upon our hearts. That's why, it, that's why the greatest commandment is for the words that God commands us that they are to be upon our heart so that we then, so that we all walk uprightly before the Lord. It'd be great if we didn't need judges. If we didn't need people to preside over matters that were too difficult to handle. When we need those things, that's good. But for all of us, and we should look in our own small communities, look to one another, and let us pray and ask the Father to put these words upon our hearts so that we might just walk them out. That we not just be followers of the Torah, but doers of the Torah. That it just, what, what naturally comes from our inward most being and the outward things, the outward appearance of things, that will follow suit. But let us always remember that the Lord, He's given us these commandments and these statutes and these ordinances. And it now is our responsibility to confess our faith in Him and to follow what He has commanded. The rest of our Torah portion continues on with that theme. I encourage everyone to continue reading on through this Torah portion. As we go into next week, there's a lot of commandments that are coming uh, up that uh, I encourage you, before we get into the Torah portion for next week, read the scripture so that as we come to our Torah teachings, that when we're, I hope to be able to bring out some of the highlights of our passages of scripture. There is a lot of instruction here, and I pray... And I ask that you would open your Bibles and that you would study these words. Pray to the Lord before you read them. Read the words and allow the Lord to put those words into your mind, into your heart, so that we can continue to walk uprightly before Him. That, I believe he, God is the greatest Torah teacher. And we have to rely on Him to teach us these words and these instructions. I'm flawed. Everyone else who works and teaches in ministry has our own flaws. And we can only do so much when it comes to teaching these words and these instructions. We have to rely on God and the Holy Spirit to always be the one who teaches us. Amen? Alright, let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you for the Torah portion of Shoftim. Father, we thank you, Lord, for continuing to choose and work with the children of Israel. A nation of slaves that you called up out of Egypt, Lord, sent them through the wilderness, Father. And that, Father, I thank you, Lord, for giving them as an example, as a light to all nations, Lord, for how to follow and worship you. Father, even through their history, Lord, they, many mistakes were made. But, Father, I pray that even in this day and age, as we know and have the words and the stories of old, Lord, Father, continue to make these words alive and powerful. Cause us to know and understand how to make them applicable in our own personal lives. Encourage us and strengthen us in our most holy faith, causing us to walk out that faith according to your words and your commandments. And Father, may we never forget, Lord, also, the sacrifice that your Son made, giving your firstborn Son, Yeshua of Nazareth, to be our salvation, Lord. For that is truly the foundation of our faith, Lord in what we need to always focus on and know and proves your love for us. Lord, you've given us a covenant. You've made covenant with man, choosing us from among all peoples, Lord. And Lord, we can read the words of the covenant, but we know, Lord, that because of the sacrifice that you gave of your Son, that we truly know the love that you have for us. And Father, may we return that love back to you. May we obey your commandments. 
May we love you and show that love by following what you have told us to do. We love you and bless, bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam nata betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, and affix your finger there to verse 19. We have two passages out of the New Testament for this week of the teaching of Shoftim. Shoftim means judges, and and there's actually not only Shoftim, but there's an explanation about prophets, about kings, about priests, uh, how they come into how they come in and receive their authority, how they're established to help the community, and so forth. And there's a lot of instruction with regard to that in the Torah portion. We're going to look at some parallel passages that comes out to determine who is what, and how is that determination made for it. Uh, go with me now to John chapter one. Uh, this is about John the Baptist when he was in the wilderness and he was baptizing. And they sent some representatives from Jerusalem, from the Pharisees. They had heard that there's this crazy guy, John, out here baptizing in the wilderness, telling everybody to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they weren't sure who this guy was. But he was causing a ruckus. There were lots of people responding to him, coming back, and there was lots of reports coming. They were getting excited about what he was teaching and preaching, and so they decided they better send a delegation out there and find out who in the world is this guy, what's he doing, and things like that. And one of the natural questions uh, that you have to know about this time frame is, is that there was a certain degree of sensitivity about the idea that the, the, the Messiah would be coming soon. And so anytime they would see something rise up, a populist thing take place, they would be wondering whether or not the Messiah had come into their midst and whether or not they would, they would want to go check it out. And if you recall, you know, there was a prophecy to the effect that the Magi, when they came, years before that Herod thought the Messiah was getting ready to come and he slew a bunch of babies down in Bethlehem uh, because he thought the Messiah King was coming. And so it, it was kind of well under, no, well understood, I should say, uh, amongst all of the people, there was a sense of anticipation going on. And so here, all of a sudden, there's this very popular fellow John out here in the wilderness preaching and baptizing and and they're wondering about you know who is that guy and what's he doing and this passage of scripture from John chapter 1 is where the delegation goes out to confront him and speak with him about these matters beginning at verse 19 John chapter 1 it says and this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you And he confessed, and he did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
He said then to them, Who are you, so that we may give answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, the reason why we select this particular passage is because um, in Shoftim, there's a very specific definition that's given to judges, Shoftim. How do judges come about? Those are chosen by the people. The Lord doesn't choose a judge over the people. The people choose a judge. They look amongst themselves. Who is wise among us who can render a judgment? And they choose a judge. In the case of a Levite, you don't go around. People don't pick who a Levite is. You're born. Either you are physically born as a Levite or you're not born. I mean, you know, that it's physical birth. A prophet. A prophet is he who's been anointed by God, anointed with the Spirit of God, and sent to be a messenger for God. And he's a forth teller for God. Most of the time, prophets were primarily sent, are you ready for this? Mostly to the leadership to confront them with things they were failing to do or to encourage them to continue to do the things that they were doing. Um, then there's finally the king. And according to the scripture, God chooses the king. The people don't choose the king. We kind of agree with the king, but God chooses the king. Um, in our more modern vernacular here of where we're at, uh, how in the world did Donald Trump become president of the United States? God chose him. That's the biblical truth. Now, personally, I voted. I voted to make sure that Hillary wouldn't become the president. That's the way I voted. However, God really chose him uh, to be the president. And the same thing is true of a king. Now, Shoftim lays this structure out. And so we have this review of this, how do people get these different positions? And here comes these um, Jews from Jerusalem, the Pharisees, checking out John the Baptist. And they want to know, who are you and by what authority do you do these things and so forth? And so it's natural, as I mentioned to you before, they, the first question they have is, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Because we're anticipating the Messiah to come. And so right off the bat, they don't even have to ask the question. John knows that's what's in their thinking, and so he answers, and he says to him, he confessed, did not deny, he confessed, I am not the Messiah. I know why you guys are here. You're trying to see what's going on. I'm not the Messiah. Let's get that square right off the bat. So they're like, okay, all right, so you're not the Messiah, so what the heck are you? So they ask, are you Elijah? Verse 21, are you Elijah? He says, no. Why did they ask that? Why did they ask if he was Elijah? By the way, let me suggest to you there may have been some reasons why he would ask that. Number one, 
You know that John the Baptist is wearing Elijah's belt. You know, the belt of Elijah that had been taken off from Elijah, stored in the temple. And his father had gotten that belt out of the temple and had given it to his son to wear. So he's walking around wearing the belt of Elijah. So is this guy claiming he's Elijah? I mean, he's wearing the belt of Elijah. Um, and so it's natural from the Nasdaq. Secondly, doesn't the prophet Malachi say that I will send Elijah to you before the Messiah comes to reunite the, reunite the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children? I mean, there's a prophecy that says Elijah is supposed to come. Um, a lot of you don't know this, but I'm going to share with you very briefly. Every year at the Passover, we set a special cup, besides the four cups of the Passover, we set a special cup called an Elijah's cup. A cup for Elijah. There's a place for Elijah that's set up at the Passover. And it's toward the latter part of the Passover Seder meal after the dinner that we pour that cup and we dispatch children out to the door to call out down the neighborhood, Elijah, Elijah, to invite Elijah to come in and join us for the Passover. And there's a reason for that. And it's based on the prophecy of Elijah and based on the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. You see, Malachi said, Elijah's going to come, reuniting children with the fathers, fathers with the children. Here we are sitting at the Passover Seder. Who's at the table? The father and the children. Children and the fathers. In fact, part of the Passover is to teach your children, teach your son that you're the one that went through the Passover. And, and teach him. So it's appropriate that Elijah would be part of that assembly, but there's a, a way more powerful reason for it. And the Jews do this. A lot of Christians have no idea about this, and even some of my Messianic brethren don't know this. The Jewish people of the Pharisaic offspring set a cup for Elijah because if, a cup, if Elijah ever shows up to that Passover... If he ever shows up and, and, and joins you for the Passover, that's the sign to you that that Passover is the start of the greater exodus and the final redemption and that the Messiah will be coming very shortly thereafter. Now, we as Messianics, we set the Elijah Cup. We don't quite understand why we do it. But for those of us who believe in the greater exodus and the final redemption like our Jewish brethren do, that cup is very important to us. Because the Passover that comes in the, in the future, brethren, in which you have heard the report that Elijah is in the world and that he's prophesying again in the world, that Passover that you hear of that is the Passover that begins the greater exodus. That is the, that's a sign to you. This is the Passover we leave. Um, that's, that's the expectation. That was the expectation that they had then. That's still the expectation of the Jewish people today. That there's Elijah's going to have something to do with the coming of the Messiah. Now, the Messiah actually did come, and who did he have introducing him? Someone in the spirit of Elijah. He was wearing Elijah's belt. That is only appropriate. That is supposed to, that's the theme, that's the model 
The Messiah comes as a result of the spirit of Elijah, as a result of Elijah's message to get ready. So John the Baptist is out there saying, repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What exactly is he really preaching and saying? Well, let me take you back to some earlier teaching of Abraham. God taught Abraham that the kingdom is composed of three things. One, the king. you got to have a king to have a kingdom. Okay, are you with me on that one? I mean, I know that's a profound piece of logic. Number two, servants of the king. And the greater number of servants of the king is how great the kingdom is. And then the third is the land. The land for the kingdom. So you've got to have the king, have the servants, have the land. So when John the Baptist is saying, repent for the kingdom of God's hand, what he was really saying is, there's some servants already here. The land is already here. The missing ingredient is the king is getting ready to come. The kingdom is at hand, meaning the missing component. The king is getting ready to come. Now, as you know, uh, the... Uh, Israel was scattered into the nations. The land was not inhabited. And so we've been waiting for when the servants will return to the land. And the land will again come back under the control of Israel. And then for the king to finally come. And that will establish the kingdom. That's what we're looking for. But understanding this, that the, the greatness of the kingdom, the size of the kingdom is how many servants do we have. And that's the reason why you and I have been dispatched to go share the good news that the king has already come. The redemption's already been done. And by the way, he will be coming back to establish his kingdom. We want you to be part of the kingdom. So come join us uh, for, to be part of the kingdom of God. Um, and... The, the size of the kingdom, again, is based on the number of servants that are in. The, and we want a large number. God wants a large number. He wants many servants in his kingdom to be part of citizens for his kingdom that he establishes. Uh, so it's natural for them to ask about, well, are you Elijah? Because he's prophesied to come before the Messiah comes. Are you, are you fulfilling that role? He says, no, I'm not. And, in fact, he's only operating in the spirit of Elijah in the concept of introducing the Messiah, but he's not the real fulfillment fully and completely of Malachi. We're still waiting for that fulfillment. And the sign that we're waiting for that fulfillment is we set a cup for Elijah at every Passover. That's the reason why we set that cup. We're looking for that prophecy to be fulfilled. All right, so then he asked him, he says, um, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. That is a very interesting question. This subject is going to come up again. Are you the prophet? Again, in John chapter 7, it will be at a Feast of Tabernacles. And it will be some of the people responding to when Yeshua stands up in the midst of the, of the uh, temple service at the water libation service, which was, by the way, the pinnacle of all altar services. The outpouring of water and wine into the two funnels so they would stream down the side of the altar. It's called the water libation ceremony. It's the highest ceremony that's done in the temple service in which all leaders of Israel lined the ramparts of the temple to see this ceremony being done on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And 
in John chapter 7, it records while they were doing that ceremony that everybody's quiet, observing. Yeshua yells out in the whole temple so everybody can hear him. If any man is thirsty, let him come drink of me, for in him will spring up wells of living water, rivers of living water to eternal life. Wow, what a profound statement that is. By the way, those waters <laughs> that they were pouring in that funnel, you know what the actual name of those waters is? Yeshua. They're called the waters of salvation. They were gathered from a pool down below called the Pool of Siloam, which means he who has sent. That pitcher of water had been brought to the temple with another priest in front of him playing a flute called the Pierced One. You know, a flute is pierced. And that ceremony is, they say this, that it is the pierced one who will bring the waters of salvation to us. Now, here they go through this whole ceremony. Doing, by the way, this is the greatest ceremony in the altar service. They go through the ceremony, and here's Yeshua standing. Okay, if you're thirsty, come drink of me. He is equating himself to the very meaning of this service. That he's the pierced one that will give the waters of salvation, the outpouring of the Spirit of God for everybody to have. And by the way, when he was crucified and he was pierced, John records for us in his gospel, I'm a witness. I'm telling you, I saw it. I saw the water and the blood stream forth from him, just like the water libation ceremony of the water and the wine coming down in two paths down the side of the altar. Just like the ceremony that's done in the temple. It's exactly how he died on the cross. Performing the real ceremony that's pictured in the temple. In the midst of that grand moment, there's a group of people who, upon hearing what Yeshua said, cried out and said, Surely this man is the prophet. But another group rose up and said, No, Surely this man is the Messiah. Now, why was one group saying the prophet and another group saying the Messiah? Because there is an expectation that there is a prophet that also comes in addition to Elijah about the coming of the Lord in his kingdom. How many of you have ever heard that taught anywhere in your church background experience. I never heard it one time. New Testament talks about it. These people in the New Testament have a very clear expectation that when the Messiah shows up, there's two guys that are supposed to show up. One is Elijah, and another guy is called the prophet. And the prophet is based on a prophecy, not from Malachi, like Elijah. It's a prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. Where God says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like me, and he will speak my words, and I will require those words of the people. Then he turns around and he says, and I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses. And the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 has been summarized by all Christians and churchmen as being a prophecy of one prophet, somebody like Moses. It's two distinct prophecies. Two separate prophecies. Because one of the interpretational rules of Torah is that if you hear a phrase being repeated 
again in the Torah. It's a separate, distinct thought. It is not the superlative form of it. For example, in our Torah portion here, Shoftim, justice, justice, you shall pursue. The second word justice does not mean what the first word justice means. The first word justice is the justice that you understand, making the right decision. But the second one means due process, that while you're seeking justice, you must do it in a just way. So we call it due process. So, And the Torah is emphatic about this. The proper interpretation of the Torah is if you hear something and it's repeated for you, appears to be repeated, it's not talking about the same thing. In this case of the prophet, I will raise up a prophet like me, I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses. Those are two separate, distinct prophecies. Let me share with you how profound the understanding of this prophecy is, not understood by the Christian church, but is understood by the rest of the world. You know how Muhammad of Islam got his start? Based on Deuteronomy 18. Muhammad heard the stories of Moses and the children of Israel and heard the stories of Yeshua. And he heard the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, and he decided to usurp that prophecy. So he stood up and he said, I am the prophet. I'm the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Muhammad. Okay? The entire religion of Islam... And the prophet Muhammad is based on this prophecy of the prophet to come. Now, they're not to be outdone. I'm sure that you're familiar with the Church of Latter-day Saints. Who's the head of the Church of the Latter-day Saints? He's called the prophet. What authority is he laying claim to as the head of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons? Deuteronomy 18. They're claiming they're the fulfillment of the prophet. And that they're the Latter-day Saints because the prophet came later. After Yeshua the Messiah came. Based on this concept of there's a prophet, there's Elijah, there's the Messiah. So we got Elijah understood. We have the Messiah understood by the church. The church doesn't understand anything about this prophet thing. And that's the reason why they don't get it about Islam. They don't get it about the Mormon church. And they have no expectation as we approach the end of the ages as to anybody showing up who's going to be called the prophet. And by the way, uh, in John chapter 7, it says something about this prophet. He will... Tell us or show us all things. This prophet is supposed to be so profound. He will tell you and show you of all things. Now, I'm going to go ahead and cut to the chase and tell you where this fulfillment comes for us in the future. It's in the book of Revelation. It's obvious as all get out. It's one of the two witnesses. In Revelation chapter 11, it says there's to be two witnesses that come. One, we're not sure exactly who he is, but the other one, we know he comes in the spirit of Elijah. We actually claim he is Elijah. So Elijah is expected to come and be one of the two witnesses. So who's this guy who's supposed to be with him? Well, some people go around saying, well, he's, the, he's like Moses again. Well, it's like the spirit of Moses. It's only it's this prophet. 
It's the one like Moses, as the prophets, he said. And the reason why he'll show us all things is, if you go back and look at the book of Revelation, he's going to explain all these different judgments that fall upon the world and announce them to the Antichrist and to the world. This is the next judgment about to fall upon you. And he's going to do exactly the same thing that Moses and Aaron did when he stood before Pharaoh, announcing the judgments of God upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh to let my people go. Why in the world would God need to have another Moses, another spirit of Moses again? Because Moses is associated with the Exodus. And we're going to have another Exodus. Only this time it will be a greater Exodus. And so we have a prophet who is scheduled to come to be a part of those things, to announce the world the judgments that will fall upon them in the Great Tribulation. It really fits and makes all kinds of sense. It fits perfectly. And here is... In this passage is this question being asked about who is John the Baptist. Now, he denies that he's the Messiah. He denies that he's Elijah. And he denies that he is the prophet. So they ask him, well, who in the world, how do we announce who you are? And he says, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of, uh, the, way of the Lord. And he defines him very succinctly in that prophecy. But the question remains into the future. When will we see Elijah again? When will we see finally see the prophet? Those that precede the coming of the Messiah. And I believe that the prophecies that are detailed for us in the book of Revelation, during the great tribulation of the two witnesses, that stand up and announce all the judgments upon the world during the Great Tribulation. I believe that's when the fulfillment of these will truly come. Elijah will be with us, and the prophet, one like Moses, he will also be with us announcing those judgments. Now, our portion is about those different positions, you know, the coming and and um, about how God establishes them, the authorities they're given and how they're appointed and put into their roles and so forth. And this uh, passage here opens up this whole topic in the New Testament for us, for a very ancient uh, Old Testament prophecy that's um, coming up. And Shoftim is very close to Deuteronomy 18 and addresses this continuing subject of who are these that are appointed to come and who are these that are appointed to operate within the community of faith. Amen. All right. Shabbat shalom. Sadonai Panai
Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around, singing Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing Shalom. Put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in his hands So obey his commands And you will know peace Shalom